0: This is Barron's Live. Each week, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our weekly webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rudland, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for a look at the week ahead in the markets. My guest is Baron senior writer, Nicholas Jasinski, who covers just about everything here, markets, economics, stock picking, and a whole lot more. We've got a lot to discuss today, interest rates, elections, and NVIDIA's earnings. So Nick, welcome, and I'm so glad to have you on the call. Let's get into it.
1: Hey, Lauren. Happy Tuesday.
0: Happy Tuesday to you. So I want to start looking ahead by looking backward. I want to look at last week's economic data. We had two inflation reports, the consumer price index and the producer price index, that both came in stronger than expected and stronger than the Fed might like. Retail sales, on the other hand, were mixed. From where you sit, I'm wondering what you see as the latest read on the U.S. economy.
1: Yeah, in short, the uh, the economy is surprisingly strong. Um, the, the CPI last week, um, the core CPI, which is the, the, uh, the, the narrower definition, which excludes food and energy components, um, that was up 0.4% in the month of January. The 12-month gain was 3.9%, which matched the December change. And so it, it, it arrested this trend of declining inflation that had been in place for, for most of the past year. Um, the producer inflation data on Friday similarly was, was higher than expectations and, and, and arrested a trend of, of, of declines each month. Um, in, in a lot of ways, that, that's a symptom of, of just how strong the economy is doing. Most of the, the categories in the CPI um, that, that are the, the, those kind of sticky categories, a lot of them have to do with wages and, and services. Um, those were up. Um, the retail sales um, were a little more mixed, on the other hand, like you said. Um, the, 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 that's an easier report to look through, however. Um, it comes after six months in a row where retail sales were higher than expected, in January, there was some nasty winter weather in a lot of the U.S. Um, weather is one of those things that, that in the retail sales report, it seems like whenever there's bad weather, that's an excuse for the retail sales being lower than expected. Nobody ever talks about, oh, the weather was great. Retail sales were higher than expected. But anyway, um, um, I don't think that's one that's that's concerning the, uh, the, the economists or the Fed, really. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an incredible, incredible environment in which, um, I mean, you remember... A, a, in I think it was June or July of 2022, inflation peaked at a little over 9%. Now it's down to 3.9% year over year, and the unemployment rate has stayed under 4% throughout all of that. I don't think there's a single economist in in the summer of 2022 expecting this. Um, so, so the short answer is the economy is strong. It's so much stronger than expectations. Um, and there are some areas where you can point to things slowing down, but nothing dramatic.
0: So as we rejoice about a strong economy, we also have to look at what that means for the Fed. And we entered the year with the markets expecting the Fed to cut interest rates six times in 24. Fed officials, on the other hand, were mostly looking toward three rate cuts. And this is after 18 months of 11 interest rate hikes to tame the inflation that you just discussed. So given the whole trajectory of rate cuts has been thrown into question by the strong numbers, what does that mean for the Fed?
1: I mean, I think it I think it vindicates this this sort of wait and see approach that the that the Fed took. Um, we got an uptick in inflation. So so it's it's um the market got a the market really had no business pricing in cuts with as much certainty starting in March as it did.
0: I'm um, so glad you said that. <laughs> um,
1: so, so that's 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 come out of the pricing. um the, the the sort of the new consensus now is is June is is the start. Um I think for the Fed it still depends on what happens between now and then. The Fed really is I think rightfully taking it one meeting at a time taking in the 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 incoming economic data and making a decision based on that um at a certain point the this this lagged impact of um there's there's that saying that sort of famously the fed policy works with long and variable lags so a lot of the cuts that happened a year ago are still working their way through into the real economy um but there's just there's the the macro conditions today do not warrant rate cuts there's enough uncertainty in in the path of inflation ahead that that this, this wait-and-see approach is the prudent thing to do. Um, the market's you waiting. Know, to was I was somewhat this.
0: amused, um, not surprised, but somewhat amused that both you and Randy Forsyth in this past weekend's Barron's, you and the trader column, Randy, and up and down Wall Street quoted Deutsche Bank, which is predicting the Fed won't cut rates until 2025. And that is an outlier view, but definitely got my attention. What do you make of that argument tell us what that argument is and then what you make of it
1: yeah so this is Matthew Lizetti who's the uh, chief US economist at, at Deutsche Bank um, basically that out this scenario where um, we might not get any rate cuts in in 2024 and that's that that would that would require um, a few things to happen first of all unemployment needs to remain under four um, percent Inflation has to stay sticky. That the the Fed's preferred inflation measure, core personal consumption expenditures, needs to finish the year somewhere around three percent. Um, and then there goes into this discussion of what's the neutral rate and productivity and 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 um, can the economy withstand a higher neutral interest rate, which neither accelerates nor um, nor slows down economic growth. So so it's it's one plausible scenario. Um, I don't think that that's any more or less likely than a scenario in which the Fed does cut more than three times, which was the the the, uh, the median dot or the, the the consensus estimate of Fed officials in December. Um, it's 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 one case that's out there. I don't think it's it's a definitive case, um, but it's it's symbolic of this. We're in sort of uncharted economic uh, waters at the moment, and and I think putting too much certainty on the the exact number and timing of of, uh, of interest rate changes by the Fed this year is is sort of a fool's errand. Um, I would say
0: we've been in uncharted territory for a long time, starting with zero interest rates.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and the the economist consensus for 2023 was to see a recession, and instead um, you had economic growth accelerate in the second half of last year. Um, so the economists have have been humbled over the past couple of years since the right. pandemic in their in their prognostications, and so. Um, um, the market likes to take the, the optimistic and bullish view of things, but... Um, um, well, that won't
0: stop us from prog- prognosticating either, I suppose. Right. So I want to talk about stocks, though, even if you assume that the economy is really humming and that the outlook is very bright for the economy, a lot of this is already reflected in stock prices. The S&P 500 is trading for well above 20 times expected earnings. Should investors be concerned about this? Should they be concerned that the market is overheated and reflects all the good news?
1: Well, so I think what that means is that you probably can't, can't count on any expansion in the multiple for, for what's going to drive the market higher. Um, but at 20 and a half times forward earnings with an economy, that's, that's doing quite well. Um, earnings forecast, I'm just looking at the analyst consensus for the S&P 500 now, um, is for earnings per share to rise more than 9% this year. And another 13 percent in 2025. That's Um,
0: amazing. So that's fast growth.
1: And and after a couple of years of growth like that, that multiple is not as expensive as it looks like. Um, So I I wouldn't count on the multiple going from 20 and a half times to 25 and a half times. Um, But even if the multiple stays exactly where it is and it's just earnings driving the, the stock prices, that's still you can you can be reasonably bullish about that. Um, And and then when you look under the surface, I mean, the the S&P 500, as as all of our listeners know, is is very heavily concentrated in those seven um, mega cap uh, tech and growth companies, which which have an inordinate influence on on the index. Um, Those bring up the average for the index. The average stock is nowhere near as expensive. um, And there are plenty of sectors where energy really stands out as being inexpensive. Um, Some parts of healthcare which uh, which are more defensive and tend to get a higher multiple um, are are not relative to their own history that expensive. Um, so so under the surface there's a little more value and and uh, um, when you look at the earnings growth rates that are expected, uh, it's it's easier to talk yourself into that multiple not being so egregious.
0: Well, I'm glad you brought up the rest of the market because it definitely is skewed by the magnificent seven. Mm-hmm. So valuations are much cheaper abroad, as we know, and yet they've been cheaper for a long time overseas, which suggests there may be no compelling reason to sell expensive U.S. stocks and buy cheaper ones overseas. What do you think about that? What are people telling you about other markets?
1: Um, so I think, again, the, the, that comparison of of, of uh, multiples has a lot to do with the, the composition of the indexes. Um, the stock 600, which is this pan-European Index that has a lot of large cap companies from Germany and France and different markets in in Europe. um, That trades for about 13 times forward earnings versus the almost 21 times for the S&P 500. The UK's uh, FTSE 100 is at 11 times. Um, But uh, it's it's it has to so the S&P 500, some more stats for you, um, has about 30 percent, 7 percent of its market cap in the tech sector, um, which has a lot of those richly valued mega cap companies that drag up the average. Compare that to the stock 600. Um, which has its top sectors are financials, healthcare, industrials. So the has a 17% weight in financials. That's its greatest. Just 6% of that index is in tech versus 37% for the S&P 500. Um, so so the, the, the sectors that make up the bulk of those indexes are cheaper, uh, get cheaper valuation multiples from investors. And that explains a lot of the valuation difference. Um, so for now, growth stocks are in vogue. Um, that favors the S&P 500 over those foreign indexes. Um, When you look at them on a kind of sector neutral basis, industrial stocks in Europe don't trade for that much more than or less than industrial stocks in the US. Um, So so that kind of sector to sector comparison doesn't make European stocks uh, any cheaper than the US. Um, And then it goes back to the the economic strength in the US. Um, GDP grew 2.5% in 2023 in the US. Um, Japan, the UK, both met the definition of a recession in the second half of last year. The eurozone um, growth was 0.1%, a tenth of a percent in GDP last year. Um, so even those more value uh, cyclical, economically sensitive sectors will probably do better in the U.S. Just given the the economic fundamentals. So it's a uh, it's it's for me it's a it's an argument for staying invested in the U.S. over the 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 foreign uh, indexes, which do look cheaper at at first view, but that has to do with the economic fundamentals and the composition of those indexes.
0: I think that's a great analysis. At the moment, there is no place like home. It doesn't mean that will always be the case, but for investors, it certainly is right now. So I want to move on to this week's earnings news, Nick. We're at the tail end of fourth quarter earnings season. And before we get into some of the companies reporting, I'm curious about your overall takeaways regarding the quarter and the guidance that companies have shared about coming quarters in their various earnings calls.
1: Fourth quarter earnings have been quite good. Um, the, the so far, about 80% of S&P 500 companies have reported, and um, this is data from Refinitiv. Um, earnings are on track for about 9.6% increase year over year. That's great. Um, As always, investors are focused on the guidance um, with the fourth quarter earnings season, companies tend to to talk about the year ahead um, and that's really the most interesting. And there, things have been a bit more mixed. Um, A lot of going through earnings transcripts of of earnings calls transcripts and um, companies are talking about how great the current economy is, the consumers are spending, um, but they are warning that this is not going to last forever. They are preparing for a slowdown um, and, and really emphasizing Uncertainty in the outlook. Um, so so the, the guidance has been a little more cautious, I'll say, if I think cautious is the right word to describe it. Um, but, but yet, you
0: said earnings growth this year is projected at 9%. So that's yeah, pretty good. That's,
1: that's what the analysts think. Um, CEOs, CEOs of companies are not economists either. Um, even the professional economists have gotten the economic call wrong. So I think um, the, there's a considerably more optimism about the earnings outlook than what a lot of Corporate executives have been saying this earnings season. Um, Again, uh, uh, corporate executives—they love to be conservative and then beat their own estimate, makes them look good. We did even better than we thought we would, sort of thing. Um, So, so, so take that cautious guidance with a grain of salt. Um, But the uh, certainly the 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 past quarter has been good, um, and the the outlook has been a little more mixed. But take it with a grain of salt.
0: Well, I'm going to say the glass is at least half full, if not more so. Indeed. All right, let's go on to NVIDIA. The company reports on Wednesday. It is the poster child for the artificial intelligence revolution. NVIDIA makes the chips. And I would argue it's probably the most closely followed stock in the S&P 500 these days. What are analysts expecting the company to report? And is the bottom going to fall out of the stock market if NVIDIA disappoints?
1: Yeah, this will be a fun one. This is Wednesday evening after the the market post. AI has certainly been the the outside of the the Fed and the economy and, and all these macro topics. AI has really been the dominant theme for for investors, not just mm-hmm. tech investors, but investors overall over the past year. Um, and Nvidia, a, a lot of companies have seen their stocks soar based on the the hype and the expectation that AI is going to transform businesses and lead to all kinds of new revenues that are that are based on um, selling AI software, in most cases, um, NVIDIA is different in that it's, it's, it's really, it's, it makes GPUs, which are literally the building blocks of, of all the software AI use cases and businesses that every single tech company is talking about. You need to buy the chips first to run the AI models that then you can sell to your, develop and sell to your customers. Um, so AI is seeing those AI revenues today, whereas a lot of other companies are talking about what they're planning on developing in AI in the future. Um, so, for NVIDIA, I mean the, the 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 numbers are staggering. The forecast for the quarter is for revenue to be up 237% year-over-year. Year, that's per all? Share, That's it. Earnings per share to be up 422%, and for free cash flow to be up 490% year-over-year. Year. This is for a company worth over a trillion dollars. This is not like a little small-cap, brand new company with a with a uh, scaling business model. This is a mature company. Um, um, so the, the the focus is going to be again on the guidance, um, what management has to say about demand, pricing, volume, all that. Um, the um, so I gave you those growth numbers. The stock is up 220% over the past 12 months, so about half as much as the earnings growth. And what that means is that the multiple is actually so it's around 30 times forward earnings, which is higher than the market. But for that kind of growth, it's actually not that demanding. Um, and, and that's that's the most amazing thing to me, that that, um, that the stock has gone parabolic, but that's really, that's that's even lagging the fundamentals at NVIDIA. So what does that mean for the rest of the market? Because these are the building blocks of, of AI, um, if there is a miss, if guidance is disappointing, then people are going to interpret that as, hmm, a lot of these enterprises that are developing AI- Businesses and AI use cases. Maybe they're actually pulling back on those ambitions. The things are not going as smoothly as we thought, and so so that that that's going to be this second derivative effect that's going to um, impact sentiment about every other stock that has some sort of AI uh, business model in the works. Because Nvidia is just this proxy for for what AI is today. A lot of those other companies haven't really generated AI-related revenues yet. That's coming in the future. Right now, investors have AI, uh, Nvidia to to grasp onto. Um, I think we may have lost Lauren, um, so I'll continue. Uh, just on the earnings topic, we had a couple companies report this morning. Um, namely Walmart and Home Depot were interesting ones. Um, both had decent quarters, Walmart more so than than uh, Home Depot. Um, both were a little circumspect about the future. Um, for Walmart, there was also an announcement that they're they're purchasing Vizio, which makes uh, smart TVs. That's more of an advertising play. They raised their dividend by a significant amount. Um, and, and for Walmart, it's, uh, sales were up almost 6% from a year earlier. Um, which was more than analysts had expected.
0: Um, Nick, I'm back. Can you hear me? Oh,
1: yes, I can hear you. I was no. just talking about, about Walmart. Um, oh,
0: good, good. No um, clue what happened. So sorry.
1: <laughs> all good. Um, I'll continue about Walmart. So so the um, Americans are, are feeling the impact of inflation and higher interest rates. They need to stretch their budgets. Um, value-focused retailers like Walmart stand to benefit from that. The company said it, it gained market share across pretty much every category that it that it sells from and, and uh, saw more shopping from higher income households. That was an interesting nugget on the earnings call that they talked about this morning. Um, as for the, uh, the, the guidance that they gave, it's for a slowdown this year. Um, the numbers are a little funny because they're doing a plan. They, they have a stock split coming up at some point, so then the, the, you got to do a little more math to get the numbers to be comparable. Um, but the company CFO, he talked about the, the uncertainty and the economic outlook, and this is what we were referring to earlier. Um, it's a cautious outlook. He gave a pretty wide range for what the earnings might be. Um, and uh, and a lot of that will depend on on just how willing consumers are to continue spending. Um, with Home Depot, sales were down about 3% from, from a year before. Um, and that has to do, a lot of that has to do with the housing market. People are not moving as much when, when you move. That's maybe when you do some renovations, um, and, and Home Depot is 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 sensitive to what's going on in the housing market. Um, again, with the guidance, it's uh, um, they talked about what mortgage rates are going to do, what the economy is going to do, and there's a considerable degree of uncertainty in there. Um, the, the the I would say the housing market is is um, is is probably one of the most interest rate sensitive parts of the economy. So lower interest rates would not only help. Um, housing-related companies, but it would indirectly help Home Depot because more people would be moving and buying building materials and home improvement-related stuff. Um, I feel
0: like I'm there every weekend. I guess it hasn't helped earnings much, has it? I guess not. No. Interesting. Two Two huge companies, bellwethers for the economy, worth watching for sure. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about a merger announcement that came out over the weekend. It's making waves on Wall Street today. Capital One, the credit card issuer, has agreed to buy Discover Financial for $35 billion. It's an all-stock deal. And there's a feeling this could have ne- negative implications for Visa and especially MasterCard, whose stock is down 3% today. What should investors be thinking about and looking for here?
1: I think this is a fascinating deal. Um it's a, it's like you said, it's worth 35 billion dollars. All stock, um, Capital One will shareholders will own about 60% of the the merged company. Um, it's at about a 27% premium to Discover's closing price from uh, Friday or Thursday, whenever the deal was 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 officially struck. Um, it's subject to regulatory approval. That's not guaranteed. It's going to take a long time. The company said it's not going to close before 2025 at the earliest. Um, the integration is going to take a while. It'll probably impact numbers, not until like 2027, to be realistic. Um, Discover is, and Capital One, they're both big credit card issuers. Discover is interesting because it also owns a network which competes directly with Visa and, and MasterCard <laughs> and Express. Um, it's, it's more similar to American Express in that they um, not only have the network, but they actually issue the credit cards as well. Visa and MasterCard do not do that. They partner with, with banks and, and, and uh, retailers and other institutions to, to back the cards. The the benefits of that that both American Express and Discover talk about is that it's it's better data. um, They can save on marketing, customization, economics of scale um, when they own the network and are also card issuers. And um, Capital One should very well be able to leverage those same advantages. Um, um, uh, Discover. It's had some issues lately with its compliance and regulatory regulatory compliance. Um, some underwriting stuff that has been problem. Um, so, so the the stock has been relatively inexpensive, and it's a little bit actually surprising. One investor I was speaking with this this morning thought that that he was surprised that Discover is selling now. Um, because well, consider
0: the consider the premium, though.
1: Consider the premium, but still, it's it's um it's it's nowhere near the the kind of valuation that a Visa or Mastercard get. It's still a slightly different business, different scale, and all that. Um, but he, this investor thought that that um, he, he would have hoped that Master, that Discover Management had waited until the credit and macroeconomic environments were a little more promising, and and once they got some of those these compliance issues out of the way. Um, anyway, regardless, it's a it's a nice premium for Discover and 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 uh, Capital One um, clearly has a long-term strategic plan for what to do with this. Um, um, I think it's really interesting. Um, the 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 owning the rails plus having the this largest what will become probably the largest credit card issuer business in the U.S. Um, makes Capital One very interesting. Um, I look if forward if regulators to- allow it, of course. Right about it. If regulators allow, uh, yeah. Uh, so
0: something to watch. I I, th- I guess the question to sell for in the end is whether the combined company can earn the same sort of multiple that Visa and Mastercard have long enjoyed.
1: Yeah, I mean Visa and MasterCard, especially I think these are the, the, the greatest big businesses out there. The, the the margins are incredibly wide. There's economies of scale. Um, and it's a business that just gets more and more profitable as it gets bigger. The, the the marginal cost of processing one more transaction on a network that already exists is zero. And it's just all profit. Um so having the 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 issuer side of the of the business and not just the the network um, makes it a slightly different business, but it, but it's but it's uh, um, certainly, the, the the credit card network is is tremendous.
0: Well, this will be a little bit of competition if things work out. So should be very interesting. I agree with you. So speaking of weekends, Nick, that was last weekend. This weekend, we have the South Carolina primary on Saturday, but of more immediate importance to Barron's, Berkshire Hathaway, Hathaway will be releasing earnings, quarterly earnings, and Warren Buffett's annual letter. Those both happen on Saturday morning. You're a bit of a Buffettologist yourself. You've been to the annual meeting in Omaha three times. Why is the annual letter so important? Why do people wait by their screens to read it? And what do you think Buffett will write about this year? Well,
1: the letter is important because I mean Warren Buffett has a tremendous following, and, and, and legions and legions of investors have have, have uh, been inspired to to invest by him and his approach. And he doesn't do that much media he's not on cnbc every day um so this really is his his way of communicating with with not just berkshire hathaway shareholders but but the world at large um i expect this year's letter to be a well-deserved send-off to charlie munger um berkshire's vice chairman who passed away a few months ago and who was who was a a, a mentor and a partner and and a um a, a, a steady hand for for buffett over the course of his career um i think that'll be a big part of it and and um in, in, in recent years, Buffett has also opined a lot on, on America and the, 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 the trajectory that the country is on, and, and he's, he's come away quite optimistic. Don't bet against the U.S., um, and I think that um, in, a, in a contentious election year where, where there's a lot of pessimism about the world and about the U.S., I, I expect Buffett to, to, um, to, to, to have some, some calming things to say about that. Um, I, think,
0: of, I think about that phrase all the time in connection with Buffett.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, in terms of the, the earnings, I don't think there'll be anything particularly dramatic. Um, they should be strong. The economy is good. A lot of the, the businesses like the railroad will benefit from that. Um, the utilities will do what the utilities do. The insurance operations will be interesting to watch. Um, Geico has has had an interesting year. Pricing is up. Um, and then as for the, the investment portfolio, we've already... Seen last week, some of the the Q four portfolio moves came out. They trimmed the Apple stake, um, Paramount as well, and increased the position in a in a still undisclosed financial company. Um, one of my colleagues thinks that's maybe a large insurer. Um, we'll be
0: interesting to, to find out when when the time is right for that. Mm-hmm. So Barrons will be covering the annual letter and the quarterly earnings. So stay tuned for that on Saturday everyone. So, Nick, we have a batch of listener questions, and we have some time to take a few. So I'm going to start out with Ken. He wants to know if you can touch on the outlook for natural gas.
1: Yeah. I mean, so natural gas prices now are are as low as they've been in a while, um, but the outlook is actually quite strong. I um, recently wrote about a, a merger between two natural gas companies, Chesapeake and Southwestern, which I thought was an interesting deal. Um, but the, um, the 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 macro case for natural gas in the U.S. is um, essentially right now there's there's a ton of production more than than actually can be um, collected and 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 sent to market in a lot of places. Um, but what's happening is um, the U.S. is building a number of liquefied natural gas export terminals, mostly on the the Gulf Coast in Texas and Louisiana. Um, in in Europe, um, of course, Europe has has worked to. Uh, separate itself from Russian natural gas for geopolitical reasons. And Europe natural gas prices are something like four or five times higher than they are in the U.S. The problem is um, gas takes up a lot of volume and it's actually hard to transport from one place to another. So it doesn't really matter if there's an excess uh, production of natural gas in the U.S. because there isn't really a way of getting as much of it to Europe as possible. Um, So these liquefied natural gas terminals will come online in the next two or three years um, and, and will vastly increase the U.S. export capacity. Um, so that'll help bring supply and demand more into balance. And then the other long-term thing you have for natural gas, which is which is supportive of the price, is that um, in many ways, natural gas is is this kind of bridge between coal and oil and other dirtier forms of fossil fuels to the, the solar and wind-powered electricity generation of the future. Um, and, and for that reason, it has a much longer life, uh, that, that kind of terminal date where you can think of... Of, of oil going away forever. Um, for natural gas, that's probably several several years past that. Um, so when you look at natural gas producers, uh, you can count on their their earnings and their revenues being stable or increasing for, for longer than you can for a lot of oil companies, if that's something that you're, you're worried about. Um, so, so I don't think that there's a, there's a near-term um, upturn in the gas price. That really depends on weather in the short-term, but the, the long-term picture is is supportive of natural gas prices.
0: All right, good answer. Next question comes from Bruce, and it is admirably economical.
1: Wither gold? It's <laughs> a good two-word. He doesn't need an editor. Um, <laughs> um, so gold has been interesting lately. Um, it's uh, let's see where the gold price is today. It's come down from, from its highs at the end of last year. Um, it's at about two thousand thirty-seven. Um, it's nothing dramatic, but but it's gold is a non-productive asset. It doesn't pay any yield um it tends to spike when there's when there's geopolitical events or or that kind of hide cash in under the mattress feeling from investors um all else equal a lower interest rate would be good for the gold price because it, it it reduces the competition or the opportunity cost of holding gold um so as as some of the the expected easing by the fed has been priced out of the market over the past month um gold has struggled um I still think that that the that there are there's no shortage of geopolitical wildcards, um, and interest rates are going to come down at some point. Um, gold still makes sense as a hedge in a portfolio, but but I, I I wouldn't be making big directional bets on gold right now, one way or the other.
0: You know, Marie asks relatedly, what you're thinking about gold and precious metals as being at least a small part of a portfolio.
1: Yeah, I think it plays a role, um, a, a couple percentage. Um, allocation to gold Uh, not for every single investor depends on 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 your objectives and your time horizon all those disclaimers um but uh it's 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 the kind of thing that that it's it's going to reduce the volatility of your overall portfolio and in moments where something is dramatic is happening um gold is is tends to play its role as a hedge um so so it it makes sense Yeah. yeah yeah
0: we have a question from Jason about small caps. What's, what do you make of the recent outperformance of small caps?
1: Yeah, so small caps had a tremendous rally at the end of last year, November and December. Um, and I mean, everything comes back to the, the Fed. And, and uh, a lot of that had to do with um, the, the market pricing in interest rate cuts this year. Um, and, uh, and and that's been that was good for for all forms of, of generally riskier assets um, which small caps fall into that bucket um this year they've done they've held up um, even as as some of the those interest rates cuts have been priced out of the market and i think that has to do with the economic outlook um and it's just passing the baton from the argument is oh interest rates are going to come down that's good for the riskier stuff by small caps to oh the economy is actually doing quite well small caps tend to be more economically sensitive and domestically focused businesses. That's a reason to own and buy small caps. So, so it's, in a way, it's a, it's a win-win, um, especially given the, the valuation starting point, which, which was quite inexpensive relative to large caps. And, and valuation is not a catalyst, as they say, it can continue to be cheap, um, but it certainly it lowers the, the bar and, um, and, and a strong economy will help small cap earnings.
0: For sure. So we had a question from Stephen about your view on the industrial sector in the next one to two years. We haven't talked much about industrials.
1: No, we haven't. Um, Industrial stocks in the US are a little pricey. Um, There's there's that same economic strength is good for economically sensitive industrial companies. Um, But you have this added element of um, these three large government spending bills, the, the Infrastructure Act, the IRA, and the CHIPS Act, Um, which will lead to more construction, more manufacturing in the U.S. Um, Companies also separate from that are from the experience of the past few years with COVID and and trade wars. have learned that they they actually want to bring some production back to the U.S. or or North America, at least to Mexico. Um, All of this is, is leading to this kind of industrial renaissance in the U.S. and maybe taking some of that cyclicality out of the industrial sector. Um, you've seen a higher multiple for the sector as a result of that, um, to the point where I think it is actually rather pricey um, but but uh, but justifiably so, um, again, i wouldn't I wouldn't count on multiple expansion for industrials broadly, um, but the earnings should deliver some growth.
0: So a lot of the good news is in the stocks.
1: I think so for industrials, yeah.
0: So you mentioned uh, all that spending, and that leads to a question from Wade. This will be our last one for today. How do you assess the interplay of restrictive monetary policy competing against high or loose fiscal policy and rapidly growing government deficits? I think that's the question of the year. But yeah, what can
1: you make? Future years, and I mean, it's it's a reality that that the both parties in the U.S. like to spend money and don't like to balance the budget. Um, and that, that's a problem that um, in some ways you could have said the same thing 10 years ago. There are some folks like Druckenmiller and, and, uh, um, and others who who have been beating this drum for a while, that the national debt and the deficit is not sustainable. It's going to lead to a great collapse. Um, the problem is deciding when that is going to be. Um, I, I sort of think that I'm going to worry about the national debt when the market does. And so far, the market has not. There was a little bit of 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 uh, of tremors in in October November where some treasury auctions uh, had a long tail is the, the term that they use meaning that there there wasn't um that there were signs that there was less demand to fill some of the the, the issuance of treasuries. Um, if you have an actual failed treasury auction where where the treasury is unable to 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 sell some of the the issuance, that I think that would be this kind of um, Minsky moment or the 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 trigger for a, for markets to really start worrying about that.
0: Well, for um, a price, you can sell anything, and that's the problem. That's,
1: yeah. Um, the price so anyway, um, to be paid. I'm wondering up, if
0: Buffett will say 100%. much about that. It's
1: going to go away overnight, but um, I'm not worried about it until the market is worried about it.
0: That's it's good advice. I'm wondering if Buffett is going to say anything about it in his letter. I guess we'll mm-hmm. wait till Saturday, right?
1: Mm-hmm. We'll see you on Saturday.
0: All right. Nick, thank you so much for thank joining you. me today. This was great. And I want to thank our listeners for tuning in as well. Please join us again at 1 o'clock for the next virtual live event in our Level Up series. Elizabeth O'Brien, senior personal finance reporter at Barron's, will be speaking with ai Pu, president of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, about America's caregiving challenges. You can still register at events.barron's.com slash level up. I believe we put that in the chat function for those interested. Barron's Live will be back next Monday at noon. I'll be speaking then with Barron's deputy editor, Ben Levison, and Andy Acker, a portfolio manager at Janice Henderson, who invests in healthcare and biotech stocks. They didn't have the best year. We'll see what 24 brings. I hope you'll join us again next Monday. Thanks again, everyone. Stay well and have a good week.